I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Do you ever see a show called uh, The Thick of It from England? No. That has the absolute best swearing on television. Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that nearly every issue that shows up in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Suki, author of the novel Love Marriage. Today, we're going to be talking about profanity, literature, and immigration with Ron Charles, the editor of the Washington Post Book World, and the creator, with his wife, of the Totally Hip Video Book Review, and Shanti Sigrin, the author of the acclaimed novel, Lucky Boy. But first, we have a sponsor for this episode, which is very cool. So before we get into the bad words, we want to thank them with some good words. This episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast is supported by Serial Box. Called the HBO of Reading by National Public Radio, Serial Box brings you gripping stories written by best-selling and award-winning teams of writers with new episodes every week. They're the addictive new shows you can read or listen to. The Serial Box app lets you switch from listening to reading with a click. Join the plot with Serial Box. Right now, fiction nonfiction listeners can get a discount on any first season of a Serial Box series. Head to SerialBox.com and enter the promo code LITHUB18. That's S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X dot com. And the code is LITHUB18. Thanks for listening. So do you think the Serial Box people were aware that they'd be sponsoring our uh, profanity episode? So the HBO of reading, you know, it should be all good. I mean, NPR didn't call them the <laughs> Sesame Street of reading. Yeah. <laughs> or the Electric Company of Reading. I, I like that show better. Anyway, we're, we're, we're starting off talking about Ulysses today. So, you know, I mean, that's pretty classy. So look, but what I want to say is thank you, Serial Box. We're happy to have you on board. And we hope our listeners, who are nothing if not classy, will go and check them out. All right. And now on to profanity. And that means on to Ron Charles, the editor of the Washington Post Book World. Welcome, Ron, you <laughs> 
<laughs> well, thank you very much. You. <laughs> Ron's better at this than me. <laughs> and that, parents, will be our last bleep. So be forewarned. We are here literally to talk shit. Later on, we'll talk to Shanti Sekaran about the president's shit, his shithole comments, his racist immigration policy, the government shutdown. But first, we want to talk about the history of profanity in American public life and literature, beginning with the 1933 United States versus one book called Ulysses. And help us, we have Ron, who we really love and would never curse. Ron, you used to teach literature. While we all dust off our college copies of James Joyce's famous novel, could you remind us what this book was about and why its subject matter was so sensational, so fucking sensational at the time? Yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And it's, uh, it's a joy to be here. I'm just uh, so fucking proud. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The novel comes out in the early part of the 20th century, uh, James Joyce. It's about a single day in Dublin. Uh, its subject matter is all over the map. Uh, it, it maps in some way uh, the story of Ulysses. But, of course, Ulysses you know, takes place over a decade. And here we've got a story compressed into a single day. Uh, follows two guys, mostly around town. Uh, but what is so striking about it is not its content, but was its presentation, which is this, you know, very at the time, extremely modern, experimental stream of consciousness style. It did a lot of things that no one had seen before. Uh, to some people, it didn't strike them as prose or literature, certainly. Uh, it was not just that it was obscene. It was, it was just kind of uh, crazy. You might even some people thought it was unintelligible. When, when did you all first read it? I, 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 I have this vintage paperback of it that I got for a high school English class uh, with my one of my favorite teachers, Ed Quigley, and I, I think I read it around 84, 85. For me, it would have been later in, in uh, college, uh, not later in, in the century, but later in my life. Uh, <laughs> Finally, really someone on the older. podcast who's older than I am. <laughs> yes, I am older than you. Uh, and I thought it was really tough. You know, I really struggled with it. I can't imagine anyone assigning it in high school because I used to teach high school and my students never would have made it through that. And I read it in high school. Um, See, so we're I, smarter I, than your average bear, Ron. Well, yeah. I think I struggled. I think I struggled. <laughs> but um, I mean, I remember kind of loving and luxuriating in the language. But I think like so many books that I read around that age, I read it again later and perhaps got slightly more out of it. But I did have pretty great English teacher who was very ambitious for us um, and had great faith in our ability to you know, take on big things. So. That's, amb that's ambitious in several ways. I mean, not only is it really, really long, much longer than most books, it's longer than Moby Dick, uh, but the content matter and the presentation are so challenging for young readers. And then you've got parents who might object too. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the interesting thing. Like the first, one of the very first things in the book that I have is Judge John Woolsey's decision in the 1933 obscenity case, right? So, I mean, look, you give a kid a book that says, hey, this was an obscene book. That's one way to get started on the right foot, you know? Yeah, but that's not going to work now. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not, but it, it worked for no. us. I mean, they would they would be so disappointed if they turned to this book for obscenity. That's true. That's true. Uh, and we'll get to that. But uh, Woolsey says... Obscenity, as legally defined at the time, meant uh, tending to stir the sex impulses or lead to sexually impure or and lustful thoughts. So in this book, what's, what I was thinking about when I was looking at the decision and thinking about the book itself, you know, was it the sex scenes in the book or the language that got Ulysses in trouble? Or was it something else? Not really the obscenity. The obscenity was an excuse for something else. 
No, it was the sex scenes, and yeah. I, I don't think it was the obscenity because if you yeah. read the book now, it's pretty hard to find an obscene passage with dirty words in it, isn't it? I, I got some underlined. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the Kindle find and the Kindle find function. My seventeen-year-old self found a few of those. <laughs> And that just seems so nostalgic now to imagine somebody pawing through this old book trying to get off. When you think of what's on the internet, when you think of what's on the internet now, yeah. I mean, no kid would bother with a book. That's well, true. honestly, I mean, I can't help but remember. I mean, one of another writer who I first read in high school um, was Updike. I mean, we were reading Rabbit. Oh, that that seems much dirtier to me. I I think so, too. I mean, I'm just remembering I was talking to one of my friends from high school about, you know, I remember we sort of were reading Rabbit and we just kind of called each other up and we're like, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember that, too. I mean, Rabbit is rich, particularly. Uh, That's the scene where uh, he's putting those gold coins in and out of his wife's vagina. Yes. Uh, Yeah, that uh, we would not have gotten away with that. That would not have been taught at my high school. No chance of that. Yeah, but uh, Rabbit Run, you know, which I think is uh, uh, the greatest of them, is not that of a scene, really. Well, I mean, the, 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 the scene that got Ulysses in trouble was from the uh, Nausicaa section. You know, and on, as, as Ron said, you know, these, the book is all mapped onto these different parts of Ulysses, the, the, the real story. And we had this big chart that Ed, you know, put together for us and told us what section was what, or we would have never figured it out. But... You know, that section is really just uh, Leopold Bloom watching a, a woman on the, on the beach, you know, sort of sunbathing, and then he masturbates, and that's the end. And there really isn't any dirty language in it at all, so I was surprised that that was the thing that got the book in trouble for, you know, a decade or so. I know. I mean, I never taught it to my students, but if I did, I can imagine many of them would not know that he was masturbating. You can't tell. Even, you know. It's, no. it, it uses the oldest device in the world, which is like the, these fireworks go off to symbolize this. <laughs> you know, it's like Love Boat or whatever, isn't that? They do that on that show. Well, maybe that's the maybe that's the origin of that. Is that the origin of that metaphor? <laughs> why not? We why don't we just say it is? Yes, yes, it is definitely. Uh, it's nowhere near as dirty as say uh, scenes in Moby Dick. You've got all those bare-chested sailors squeezing knots of sperm in a big bucket. Yeah, I remember I mean, that that's, scene. That scene is hilarious. <laughs> okay, so can somebody just read one legitimately dirty part from Ulysses? All right, I'm going to do this. This is going to prove to Ron that there were dirty words in Ulysses. This is from the Molly Bloom soliloquy. I wanted to kiss yes. him all over his lovely young cock so that there, so simply I wouldn't mind taking him in my mouth if nobody was looking as if it was asking you to suck it so clean. Hi, Mom. I'm my mom listens to the podcast, so this is okay. the final yeah, end of my degradation from high school. Is where it's all coming full circle here. Yeah, even my high school students would have caught that. I mean, that certainly does seem legitimately dirty, and which brings us to this. That'll be the worst thing I ever read in public on the radio. Well, maybe, you know, I don't know. I could write something yeah. that would be worse than that, I guess. Definitely. Podcast, not subject to the FCC. Um, so we'd wait, but this brings us to the second profane book and trial we wanted to talk about. Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, which was published in France in 1934, right after this 1933 court case, the Joyce and Random House won. Um, and Tropic of Cancer was 
you know, after that repeatedly seized by U.S. customs agents, declared obscene by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in 1950 and wasn't legally published until 1964 when the Supreme Court ruled that it was not obscene. Like, why didn't the Ulysses case just settle things? Like, why was there a second trial? Well, the terms of the original decision were pretty slippery, even at the time. Uh, and so there were continued to be obscenity cases throughout. I mean, there are still obscenity cases uh, because you have to prove what is obscenity in each case. Ulysses was allowed to be published because it was proven that it was not legally obscene, not that obscenity could be published. Right, that it wasn't, it wasn't obscene according to the definition, which they didn't change. Yeah, and then so it was later court cases that started messing around or trying to redefine what obscenity was or make it a looser definition. The, 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 the funny thing about the, the Miller case was that it was actually decided by a different case that was decided on the same day, which was a suit based on a, on a Louis Malle film uh, that was playing in Ohio. And the film owner, the, the guy who owned the theater, had, they said that he'd been a, accused of showing obscene material. That was the case that had the famous decision from Justice Potter Stewart talking about obscenity or pornography, and he says, he defined it as, I know it when I see it. Everyone's heard that, right? Yeah, and that's that's the kind of the kind of slippery definition that is of really no no use at all. And then you've got other yeah. things the court introduces, like community standards, or whether the work has uh, what they call the slightest redeeming social importance. I mean, those are not very cut and dried standards for publishers to use. It still doesn't seem very cut and dried. I mean, the judges all had different definitions in that case, and then there was another one, another case, Miller versus California in '73, that set up this standard that says that. Obscene, obscenity is material that lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. That's what basically is the standard today. Right. And so it's easy for pornographers, you know, you know in the 70s and 80s to throw in some serious article in the middle of lewd pictures and then claim that the magazine, you know, meets that standard. Oh, so that's why Playboy had articles in it. I, I wasn't using that example, but there are other <laughs> much, much, much cruder examples than Playboy. Reading up on this, it appears to me, and we're, none of us are constitutional scholars, so one of our smart listeners can Rick call in and correct us, but obscenity is still not protected by the First Amendment. Um, right. As far as, as far as I know, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yes. So, so how what, do you get to Pornhub? <laughs> well, you claim that it has some social value. Okay. That it's some artistic value. I'd like to see that argument. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, well, it's not hard, it's not hard to make if you you know define it very very broadly in terms of mental health or expressions of uh, repressed uh, orientations or even you know, there's lots of different arguments you could take. Yeah, Our, my uh, we had a reviewer many many years named Carolyn C, one of the great book reviewers, uh, just passed away a couple yeah. of years ago. But she was sometimes called in for obscenity trials. You know, she was one of these experts who oh, would really? go and make, yeah, it's, she got such a kick out of it. Uh, but she would go in and make these arguments about the social importance of different works of art that were being uh, accused of being obscene. Oh, that's fascinating. Community standards. Here again, I know later in the episode, we'll be talking to Shanti um, a little bit about kind of what does it mean to be thinking about this language in terms of the way that the right and the left use it for politics, but sort of, but it's very majoritarian. Like, what does it mean when the people determining these things, I mean, as we talked about in our last episode, right, a huge amount of the publishing industry is controlled by white Americans. So then, for example, you can see, you can see 
like situations where if I'm remembering correctly, like some examples of trying to like censor like really radical texts on the grounds that they were obscene or that they were profane in some way. Um, and some of those were like, anti-racist texts or just sort of like really groundbreaking works by people who in some way were marginalized. Yeah. I right. mean, I, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's that's one of the real dangers. Uh, books by uh, early gay writers, lesbian mm-hmm. writers, uh, black writers, uh, that sort of legal argument was used to repress works that were of immense social importance. Well, that that's one of the things, and I'm going to flip this just a little bit on, on what you guys are saying, because, you know, Tropic of Cancer is famous for its sex scenes, uh, and it's referred to in movies all the time, and, and, and movies have been made about Henry Miller, but... Um, I think that the, in, the the focus on its obscenity sort of obscures what I think the book is really about at its best self, and we'll maybe talk about its other self later. But you know, it's written by an expat living in Paris in the depths of the Great Depression. It's sort of a profoundly anti-capitalist, anti-Western book. It's saying that Western civilization is at an end, really, and the profanity is a way of making that critique. But it's not the critique. You know, it's not why the book exists. Yeah, Miller's Paris is definitely not like the airbrushed bohemian version that you get in Hemingway or in American popular culture, like an American in Paris or something. Um, I think I've just got this little snippet of Miller that I could read here. Um, This is an example of Miller explaining why he wants to be obscene. In the 400 years since the last devouring soul appeared, the last man to know the meaning of ecstasy... There has been a constant and steady decline of man in art, in thought, in action. The world is pooped out. There isn't a dry fart left. Who that has a desperate, hungry eye can have the slightest regard for these existent governments, laws, codes, principles, ideals, ideas, totems, and taboos. If anyone knew what it meant to read the riddle of that thing which today is called a crack or a hole, if anyone had the least feeling of mystery about the phenomena which are labeled obscene, this world would crack asunder. I'm sorry I had to laugh there, but I just thought of my son saying, the world is pooped out. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ron, what do you make of Miller's rationale for obscenity, and how would this book hold up if it were being published today? Is it is it legitimately obscene? Is it Trump-worthy obscene? Is it... I remember legitimately obscene passages from that book, and I haven't read it for 40 years. Uh but it, what you just read reminds me of the same argument Norman Mailer makes. I think it was in Armies of the Night when he talks about the true obscenity of America is what they're doing in Vietnam. It's not using some bad word. Yeah. Yeah, and that gets to me – I mean um, that gets around to something that I, you know that is frustrating me about the current political debate, you know, which is that people are getting upset – about a word that the president used, shithole, which we'll talk, and we're going to talk a lot more about this in the second half, but using the word is not the problem. It's the underlying policies that are being obscured by the use of profanity. And, and, and um, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out how it is that, given all the profanity in our society now, this has become the thing that we are all talking about. Well, I would argue that it was the racism of that comment that made it so incendiary and so offensive. Yeah. I mean, if, Pres- if President Trump had said, uh, for instance, uh, I wish all the Nazis in my campaign would go back to the shithole where they belong, you know, there'd be no problem with that, no, not, right? Not for me. 
Right. Not from, I don't think from most people. Yeah. We would have, we would have uh, all celebrated his strong language in, uh, you know, rebuking these racists, but that's not at all what he did. Uh, and so that's, I think, what we were reacting to. Nobody's shocked by the word shithole, please. We even are using it in the headlines in the post now. Yeah, which I appreciated rather than the kind of euphemisms that we were getting from some other publications. Well, I think uh, when it becomes the subject of the story, uh, then it has to be expressed. But it's a real problem. I mean, our copy desk worried about this for a long time, or at least as long as we could, given the news cycle. But I remember, you know, we had these arguments uh, back during the Clinton administration, too. I mean, what can you print? Uh, Mr. Clinton and uh, his intern made it pretty tough on paper. I was at the Christian Science Monitor at the time, and, you know, it was hard to cover stuff like that. Well, we're getting a lot more practice now, I guess. Uh, all right. Um, <laughs> So the other thing that was interesting for me reading this book is it was hard for me not to notice, looking back on both of these books, uh, Ulysses and Tropic of Cancer, how male they are and how male their view of sex is when we're talking about obscenity. Uh, Joyce does write from a woman's point of view, but even so, read a certain way. You know, Leopold Bloom in the Nausicaa section we were discussing is basically Harvey Weinstein on a beach. You know, and, <laughs> and Miller, you know, I mean... It's possible to make an anti-capitalist critique without misogyny, uh, which that book is full of. Um, so would these books be considered obscene today, but just for different reasons? And is that a good thing? Uh, no, I don't think they'd be considered. I, they aren't considered obscene today. Uh, they're locked into, you know, early 20th century history. So, no. Uh, but are there some really good, sharp feminist critiques of those books along the lines that you just began? I'm sure there are. Yeah, and I mean, you get this in the classroom a lot, right? Like, what do you do with a text that is a part of history and literary conversation and that you feel, for example, that you want to share with students or peers? How do you contextualize misogyny, racism? You know, I, I taught um, All the King's Men last year, and that has racial slurs in it. Um, in the early pages. And, you know, I had a great conversation in class about it with my students, uh, but had to really think about that. I also think about the ways that just sort of space, space is taken up by some of these books. I wonder sort of also just about the books that we don't talk about as much, right? Like Ulysses gets assigned, but The Awakening, yeah, um, for example, that. is read by, yeah, it's just read by far fewer people. Like, I mean, I don't think, I wonder like what would happen. I mean, even the very title of that book, can you just frame that book for everybody and the story behind it? Because that book was published before either of these books. Yeah, and I mean, that book is set in Louisiana. And, and I think if I'm getting my dates right, it's it was published in like 1899. And the responses to it, right, like it got all sorts of, um, and by some reviewers, it was sort of hailed as a brilliant book. But, you know, we wish she would turn her considerable talents to better things. Um and then sort of the the backlash to this book, which which is about um, a woman in Louisiana and her affairs, like the backlash to this book sort of destroyed Kate Chauvin's career. Like it, I it was came thought to, this to be really too explicit. Late. Yeah, I mean, kind of right. Like it was it was just sort of like, well, what is she doing writing about this? Um, right. Like, and, and not only is it's not just sexuality, but right. But it's like women's sexuality, which is sort of even more taboo. Like the idea that one ought to be like quite demure, right. Like uh, explorations of women's desire. Like we would far rather look at like Jane Austen. Mm -hmm. Um, and here you've got this really independent, you've got an independent heroine in the awakening. You've got, um, right. Like someone in Louisiana 
um, in like an American setting. I mean, this this book was really groundbreaking. And then sort of after that, like she sort of disappears like that. This book wasn't part of the conversation in the way that, like, say, Ulysses was and is. And I have to think that that part of that is about the fact that it's I mean, I think of it as a feminist text, but I came to it like far later than I came to than I came to Joyce. Um, And I mean, one could make, like, say, a simple argument about like craft there that like Joyce is a writer who you would read before Kate Chopin simply on the basis of craft. But I think that, like, I don't know. I just, I... I don't think I you think need about, to make that argument. I think your argument's perfectly valid. <laughs> yeah, I and mean, I just, like, like it would be it would be really awesome to think about, like, assigning the awakening in high school. But I would imagine that, you know, as, as Ron probably knows far better than me, like, you would get in, you would get in trouble with some parents, I'm, I'm assuming, about... But it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be, excuse me, it wouldn't be sexuality, it would be suicide, it would be the issue. Hmm... Yeah, well, and that's what would make me nervous about it in the high school class. Although I did teach that book, uh, but in the high book, school, uh, you know, I can't remember now. I was a college teacher for about seven years. They're all blending together now. I'm so old, uh, but there, there's nothing uh, sexually offensive about the Awakening that I remember. Well, I think that I would think of it as um, I'm. I mean, I think it would be the adultery, maybe. Yeah, but that I mean that that would no parent would object to that except in the most conservative southern towns. I I just can't imagine that would be widespread. But we're all hyper anxious about suicide when it comes to working with uh, teens now uh, because we're all freaked out about it. We don't know how to deal with it, and we don't know how to talk about it. So that seems really interesting, uh, Ron. You know, you're in touch with the the stream of books all the time as, as a critic, you know? Uh, uh, so what are the, the things that people are nervous about? Suicide is, is one. Are there other subjects that are, that are really, uh, battlegrounds right now? A uh, race. Yeah, I would say race. Uh, because <clears throat> it is such a strange, <clears throat> such a strange tension or emphasize books that have a much more positive, much fuller, more life-affirming impression of what it means to be African-American in this country. But so many of the canonized books, you know, for perfectly good reasons, uh, give an extremely dark view of what that life is like. And, you know, if you're 14 to 16 years old, do you really want to read that over and over and over again? Well, Danielle Clayton, our guest from last week, has a company designed to publish just exactly those books. Excellent. Excellent. I am actually recording in my childhood room in my parents' house because my kitchen is being redone in my house. And I look to my left, and there's The Awakening. So it obviously was not an obscene book, Sugi, or would not be on my mother's bookshelf. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody, yeah, I... I, The logic of that. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's also like... I think the thing about The Awakening that sort of always catches my eye when I think about this is, first of all, that she never wrote another novel. And second of all, that like The Awakening, right? Like to me, the silent word between those two words is like either sexual or artistic. Mm. Um, And those are kind of the two ways that I think about that book. So, I mean, it's true. It's not exactly like obscene or profane, but it's sex positive, um, (laughs) which is, I mean, very much a word of today being applied to that book. I like that. That's Uh, good. It's nice to know that, um, Ron, that you think that other people would not object to, like, adultery in a novel for high school readers. I kind of think that there's – don't you think there's some – I kind of think there's some people who would. I mean, I think that there's, like, maybe even a fair number of people who would. Um, 
It's hard to find a novel that doesn't have adultery in it. The Great Gatsby is about adultery. That's true, but do you think, like, like when your average parent, I don't know, like, can I even talk about your average parent? But, like, when your average reader thinks about Gatsby, do you think that's the way they frame it? Whereas, like, The Awakening is, like, very much about, like, it starts with, like, she leaves her family. Like, you've, I've seen much, much dumber arguments launched against, like, say, for example, like, Beloved or... Um, I mean, basically, like Toni Morrison's entire body of work. Um, yeah. I just but, really feel like. But those are much more explicit and I think disturbing books than The Awakening. I mean, Beloved contains a scene where men are forced to sodomize each other or they get their heads blown off. That's a shocking scene. That's a. There's, no, yeah, there's nothing like that. There's nothing like that in The Awakening. When people want. those, That's a case where obscenity is used to ban a book because the actual ideas of the book are the thing that make people uncomfortable. You know, I think that happens quite frequently. Yes, I think that's probably the majority of cases, honestly. Yeah, I guess I think that that's what happened to The Awakening when it came out, right? That it was sort of like, in its time, was considered immoral and scandalous. And that, yeah, I mean, I I just, I don't know that it's assigned much these days. But I think that, um, I think you make a really good point about beloved um one of my proudest moments was when my first novel the huntsman was banned by the blue valley school district in kansas city yeah that's what you every author prays for that right it's some high, high profile court case that'll make your book famous i've never been able to reach that summit again <laughs> um, i was banned what about what was it about it huh what was it about your book that got it banned? Well, I mean, it was a book about how segregated Kansas City was, um, and I think it was the ideas behind that book uh, that got it banned. But uh, I, and, and you know, many of the kids in, the, in that school district attended country clubs that I was talking about how racist they were. Uh, oh, yes. But there was also an interracial love affair, and there were sex scenes in it. It seems like now that we've come back to racism, we must bring. Come back also to Donald Trump. Um, he's always giving me these great segues. <laughs> the best, the best segues. The best segues. We decided to do this episode because of Donald Trump's now infamous shithole or shithouse comments, which we'll be discussing in detail in a bit. But you're a very politically aware book critic, Ron, and you have a lively Twitter account. And I'm just wondering what you think about literature's role in bringing profanity and frank sexual writing to the masses during the last century. We sort of talk about this as an unalloyed, liberating good. And, and was it? And now that Trump's gotten hold of the words, all the best words, um, has it just turned out to make things worse and coarser? He has definitely made our political language worse and coarser. I don't think there's much debate about that. started during the campaign with those hideous uh, – you know, bragging about uh, grabbing women and forcing himself on people and moving on them like dogs. I mean, it's hard to imagine any politician or any public person using language like that and not being driven off into the woods where they belong. Uh, the fact that we were able to consistently overlook that, even the most conservative Christian organizations consistently overlook that language or imagine that it does not represent his true ideas still shocks the conscience, I think. I mean, his word, if I was thinking back to that tape, it sounds like dialogue from a porn movie. 
<laughs> which he was in, apparently. I haven't seen it, but I guess he had some cameo in a porn movie. I've I heard mean, this over, uh, over again. Donald Trump's uh, relationship with the porn industry is just gets deeper and deeper as we go along here. I mean, you know, we've got Stormy Daniels out doing shows and talking about her relationship with him. Yeah, and I think what we don't want to get, we don't want, just because we don't like this president, we don't want to fall into the trap of condemning sex or sexual language. Uh, I think that would be a terrible step backwards. Uh, it's the element of abuse and racism that has always wedded his sexual terms that I find so disturbing. I agree. I think it's important to to say that and to ex- you know express how you know the directness of that racism. Um, so when I'm talking about the way that the furor over those comments have obscured the issues of immigration, I'm not talking about the racism that needs to be called out. But but talking about it. What I what starts to worry me is when I hear people on the right, someone like Laura Ingram, say things like, "Well, if he just said hellhole, he would be being honest. You know, it's just a, not a very nice place to live there." And she's trying to say like the real the only problem with what he said was that he used the word shit, but that's not what the problem is. Right? <laughs> no. There's this other there's this other thing that's way more important. Yeah, you know? exactly. Exactly. I find these arguments about uh, profanity and obscenity, particularly in schools, uh, as you already suggested, so frustrating because they're always substitutes for some other much more profound argument that is not being expressed. It's always some sort of subterfuge or substitution. Uh, and in this case, you know, we're going to argue about whether we're shocked by the word shit. No, we're shocked by racism, or we should be. We should be. But I mean, also, right, like this is a long sequence of like we're talking about shitholes. So we're not talking about, say, like American imperialism or colonialism, um, which was in so many of the countries that he was referring to as shitholes, like a factor. Certainly. I mean, we have this sort of like really ahistorical way of reading the news, which is so strange to me. Like the, all of these debates are just kind of like denuded of history. Yes. Just, yeah. Just to bring us back to the beginning, you know, one of the things that really actually upset a lot of people about Ulysses was Joyce's very cogent and determined attack on the Catholic Church. Um, that was the thing that underlay, I think, some of the reasons it was criticized as being obscene. <laughs> we didn't talk about romance novels, which I uh, I think we we should, or if we have time, do it right now. Yeah, we'll sign off. What do you got? What do yeah. you got on romance novels? Well, I, I you know some of the novels we were talking about are critically important to scholars of literature, but they were not what most people were reading, you know, as far as sales go. And you've got this whole industry written mostly by women, largely for women readers, you know, that was exploring romance and love and sexuality for decades. And that's the real influence on American culture that I think is invisible to critics, but is a lot more important to ordinary readers' lives. And they were working out ways to talk about, you know, what goes on in the bedroom within the context of all sorts of attitudes about what could be said and what couldn't be said. And and uh, I think we need a, a much richer critical language to talk about that. I don't know. I've, I've been out of scholarship so long, I don't know uh, – what's out there. But you look at a book like Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, and the millions of copies that that sold, and whether I know there's an issue about whether that's a true romance novel or not, but it did introduce erotic literature to lots of readers who never would have seen it before and had never read it before, seriously. Not that, you know, what, what I mean. Uh, and that gave re- rise to hundreds of other books and hundreds of other writers 
mostly women, but men too, uh, who talk about love and sexuality in a much more explicit way and got great sales out of it. I think that's a really good point. And also just sort of reminds me of, right, like there's the kind of, um, i trying to think of like which era to pin, pin this to or if this is even sort of era specific, right? But sort of the idea that like, novel reading was like a was like a frivolous and perhaps morally dangerous thing to undertake in general that like in novels lay social decay and you know you sort of of a piece with playing cards like in gambling like there's a sort of like oh this desire for both fun and money and in reading novels like this like oh this hunger for ideas that are that are put in the form of a story that has no clear utility Exactly. Um, it's solitary pleasure, which is so close to another sin. <laughs> and on that dangerous note. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for being on the show. It was incredibly fun talking to you. Oh, it's great fun talking to you both. I really appreciate being asked. I just wanted to say, and I, I'm sure the Tsugi agrees with me, that the Washington Post book world is this incredibly important institution for readers and for writers. So all of us are oh my grateful, gosh. grateful for the work yeah. that you do there. I mean, I have been a post I mean, I grew up in, because I grew up in Bethesda, like, I really feel like, I feel like I was educated by the post in a way I can, like, really not overstate at all. Like, everything that I knew about journalism and about reviewing was from Bookworld and from the post, which I read. I read every word of the post from the time I was five until the time I was 18. Oh, that's great to hear. And, yeah, I just am so, so grateful for it. Um so thank you so much for taking time to be on. And um, yeah. I we'll see you so. soon, I hope. Yeah. I hope so, too. I really appreciate it. I'd be glad to talk to you guys anytime. All right. Bye. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. And now we're excited to welcome Shanti Sikharan to the show. Shanti is most recently the author of the novel Lucky Boy, which came out last year from Putnam Penguin Random House. It got starred reviews from Booklist, Kirkus, and Library Journal, among terrific reviews from lots of publications, and the New York Times called it exceptional. We thought it was, too, and we're so happy to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Uh, in Lucky Boy, an Indian-American couple unable to conceive fosters the child born to an undocumented Mexican immigrant, a woman who ends up in detention. So, of course, when it was reported that Donald Trump referred to some countries as shitholes or shithouses and suggested that the immigrants of some nations were more desirable than others, we thought of your book and of your characters, Kavya Reddy and Soli Castro Valdez, who have so much in common and also live lives that are so far apart. Could you tell us how you came up with this idea? Yeah. Um, well, so I, I started writing this book uh, initially as Soli's story. Soli is the young woman who's Mexican and undocumented. Uh, I started off with her, but I knew that she was going to be ending up in detention and that her son was going to end up with a, cu a couple who wanted to adopt him, an, an American couple. Um, and it was important to me to explore both sides of that story. And, you know, a lot of the news items that we see, a lot of the more traditional stories create a binary where you have an immigrant of color um, dealing with a white American family. My book looks at a, a Mexican woman who whose interests go up against the interests of an Indian American couple. And this has sort of become a defining core of the book, but it didn't really start out that way. Um, I started out always with an Indian American couple, but I sort of did it without even thinking about it. 
you know, I, I started writing, uh, Kavya and Reddy's, uh, sorry, Kavya and Rishi's story. Um, just because I generally make all my characters South Asian, unless there's a reason for them not to be. Right. But then it became important to me actually to have, um, the, the non-immigrant side be South Asian, uh, for one, because I wanted to get away from that binary, that brown-white or black-white binary. Um, and also because I, I feel like it represents the reality of how diverse we actually are now as a nation and how much disparity there is in how we treat certain immigrants differently from others. Well, it makes the book really fresh to me. You know, I mean, I, the binary that you're talking about, I mean, I can think of books that use that binary like, you know, T.C. Boyle's Tortilla Curtain. Mm-hmm. That, you know, appears all the time in fiction, but this is the first time I've read a book uh, that sort of comes at it from this angle. Yeah, yeah, and that happened because, I guess because of who I am. You know, it, it wasn't really intentional. It just grew out of my life and my experience. Well, the book's pretty compulsively readable. Um, we thought of your book when we were talking about the shithole remark or the shit house remark or whatever we're going <laughs> to uh-huh. call it. Um I love being associated with that now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, I think, you know, we were trying to bring some sophistication and nuance to the conversation and we thought Shanti, um, and your book obviously preceded that shithole remark and the immigration policies that we're talking about these days. And these are, these are not new conversations. DACA, um, I see the plight of undocumented immigrants, uh, the Muslim ban, and even that sort of is a, the relatively new category of people perceived to be Muslim, assimilation, mm-hmm. model minority, freedom of speech, et cetera. These are all these these contested terms. So you're also writing a book that um, was dealing with all this sort of language. You know, people use different terms in my book depending on where they're coming from. So when I started researching this, it was back in 2011. And one thing I can think about is is ICE, this group ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement. Um, when Such I a started, scary acronym in its way. Yeah, so. yeah, you know, that's what I was going to, that's what I was going to say. When I started, I'd always thought of this group as being INS, Immigration Naturalization Services. Um, and it was actually established in 2003 as ICE. And I think it took a number of years to, to catch on in the mainstream. But just as writers, I think we can appreciate the, uh, the, the unspoken nature, the, yeah, the connotations of that word. Yeah. Um, ice, that acronym, you know, it's cold. There's like coldness to it. Well, you, you ice someone, you kill them. You know, I mean, that's, that's yeah, one of the yeah. meanings. There's violence in there for sure. And, um, there, there's an inhumanity, an inherent inhumanity in the sound of that acronym. And I don't think that's accidental. You know, I think there's a certain amount, amount of power wielded by that sound. Um, and we also look at terms for undocumented immigrants. So there was a time when it was very common to call an undocumented immigrant uh, an alien or an illegal alien or just, you know, it's a blanket term, illegals. Um, and of course, thinking about that word alien, you know, it's so unearthly, it's so dehumanizing, um, and it's still used, it's used almost aggressively. It's used almost deliberately now. So I noticed that, uh, when the, when I think Trump or, or, or also his, his sort of cohort in the Republican party have started calling the dreamers, which is how 
the people who were affected by DACA uh, yeah. were originally named, you know, they started calling them illegal uh, immigrants, right? I uh-huh. mean, you know, uh-huh. it's a noticeable, deliberate change of language. Yeah. Yeah, it is, you know, and it's used deliberately. And um, language, you know, I, I think of the poet Solmaz Sharif. She talks about the use of language and how language um, can be used for violence and how there can be violence against language. And I, I think of that every time I hear Donald Trump use the term illegal, use the term alien. Um, there's violence in this language. And it's also violence against the truth. It, it, there's profanity against what is true when they use these terms. So we were just talking with Ron about the fact that the pro-profanity position used to be sort of the position of the artist and the left. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there have been various obscenity trials and questions about what could be banned in, say, American schools, et cetera. And sometimes that position still is the position of the left. But now you can also find people on the left who are shocked by Trump's language, not just in the shithole case. And I think for some of the reasons that you were just saying, and that now you can also find people on the right saying that the only thing that was really wrong with his comments was that he used a profane word. If he just used the term hellhole, then like sort of, you know, he's telling the, he's telling the truth. He's a straight shooter. Um, You know, he's sort of our, our, our chief truth teller. That which is a horrifying idea to me. (laughs) Well, I mean, going back to what, uh, what Shanti was just saying, um, you know, the violence, I don't, maybe I would, I'd be curious to know whether you think profanity itself is, is the violence here, or if it's these other terms that are actually violent and profane. Maybe shithole's not as yeah. profane as illegal immigrant or alien or ICE. Right. I think it's it's the spirit in which words are used, and it's the ideas behind those words. Um you know, one way to look at it is that the, using words for a sort of perversion of the truth is the profanity. That is the violence. Mm. Um, you know, using a scatological term is not in itself profane. So the argument, the argument for, you know, uh, Ulysses, for instance, which we talked about in the first half, you know, was that, look, this is how people actually think. It's an honest thought rather than mm-hmm. a, a masking thought, right? But... Mm-hmm. When Trump uses the term shithole, it doesn't feel like an honest thought. It feels like a deliberately masking thought. It's like a, it's like twisting the way that pr- profanity used to work as a way to shock a sort of system that was insensitive. Um, and I don't know what it's doing, but it seems like a different use of profanity. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it seems to me, right, like it's sort of trying to make... Right, like the res- the response is sort of oh, like those snowflakes, they want their safe space, right? Um, right, like the the idea that um, I don't know, almost as though language is denuded of meaning, like it doesn't matter how you say what you're saying, is so, something underlying that. Maybe profanity becomes mm-hmm. a way of, of brutality, whereas before, if you're looking at uh, the way it's used in Ulysses, for instance, uh, it's a language of honesty. Yeah, but of course, if he spoke to a Trump supporter, you know, they would say that they're being honest now, that they've done away with this political correctness, they've done away with this false politeness, and they're using words of sh- like shithole to express what they actually think, and they they see virtue in that. Wait, when you're saying 
illegal, you're pausing a little and then you're adding immigrant. And I feel like it's because mm-hmm. you instinctively understand that illegal is a noun and is even worse. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I always kind of flinch, right? When you get right there are sections, Shanti, in your book where people are referred to as illegals by, say, yeah. customs officials. And I know that I flinch, for example, when I read something and it refers to blacks as opposed to black people um, mm-hmm. or and I, I recently had my attention called to like the violence of saying slaves as opposed to enslaved people. Um, yeah. And just sort of like some of it is even like in the very tiny grammar choices. Yeah. I mean, there's a move towards humanizing at every possible angle because I think of the historic dehumanizing that's happened around these people. Perhaps we should be using profanity to describe, you know, not only the Republican approach to immigration, but also describe the Democrats' failure to sort of be clear about what their immigration ideas are. You know, we're taping this show in the middle of a federal government shutdown that each part for mm-hmm. which each party's blaming each other. You know, I, I blame mm-hmm. the Republicans because uh, I'm a Democrat. But that said, you know, here's what CNN said was probably the bipartisan compromise that was offered to Trump by Democratic Senator Dick Durbin and Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. CNN thinks this because they proposed a bill with these outlines uh, on Wednesday, January 17th. They figured it was probably what they showed Trump. And and, and what they showed Trump caused him to say shithole or shithouse, refuse the deal and begin the shutdown. So here was the deal that that Trump rejected. Supposed to be bipartisan. Save DACA or the Deferred Action Childhood Arrivals Program, but also eliminate the diversity visa lottery, spend $2.705 billion on border security, and limit family-based migration. I don't think that seems like a very good deal. Yeah, they're not giving much up from the right with that deal. And we're giving up a lot. I mean, you know, the, yeah. the, the when you say limit family-based migration, um, you know, what that, that, that was a U.S. policy that started in 1965 with the Immigration and Nationality Act, which was sponsored by by Ted Kennedy that that mm-hmm. made the idea of reunifying families a crucial part of our immigration policy and also opened up immigration to countries other than Western Europe and Mexico, which is where we we're primarily getting our uh, primarily most of the immigrants coming to the States were coming from those areas. So, you know, yeah, it changed the face of America in good ways, in my view. But the Democrats are sitting here saying they want to change that program. I don't I don't get that. Why? I'm not, I guess I can't ask you to speak for Dick Durbin, but what, what do you think about that? You know? Yeah. Um, you know, I know that my family was able to come over because of the 1965 change in immigration. Um, and it was an extension of the civil rights movement. You know, the U.S. government at the time said, OK, well, we've made these strides in civil rights. Um, it's a natural extension of that to end this racist immigration policy that's been sort of just accepted and and in place for decades. Um, I think that what, you know, what I've heard for years now, both in the United States and in England when I lived there, was this uh, sort of narrative around immigration uh, perpetrated by anti-immigration speakers, where, you know, you say that if, if you let one in, you know, they'll bring their aunts, they'll bring their grandma, like they'll all come in. And it's framed as this sort of menace, this this threat to our nice, cohesive American or British society. Um, it's somehow become framed as a negative possibility rather than what I think it is. And, and, you know, what I think it was seen as in 1965, which is 
a positive, a, a chance to keep families together, a chance to bring over multiple generations of a family and enrich what America is. I don't know if you've seen um, Jennifer Mendelson, who does uh, genealogy and related work, and she has been tweeting people who have been speaking against, quote unquote, chain migration. She has been tweeting their immigration histories at them. And some of the people who are speaking against it are beneficiaries mm-hmm. of this policy, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems like I mean, it's it's an it's it's a lot of the policy that has made the United States what it is now, including those people. Right. Well, I and I the other the other policy that that Trump has been tweeting about, and which the Democrats were offering, or at least Dick Durbin was offering to get rid of, is the diversity lottery program, which was part of the Immigration Act of 1990. It began the lottery mm-hmm. itself began in '95, and it allows up to 50,000 visas to be distributed to countries that have had fewer than 50,000 nat- natives immigrate to the U.S. in the prior five years. That's what the language reads on the website. So, mm-hmm. you know. It is just saying like, hey, we want to get a diversity of, of, of applicants for visas into the country. I, I can't understand why. Well, first of all, if you read the transcript of Trump's meeting with some with this group before they before they before the deal blew up, you can understand you see that he doesn't really understand. What he thinks yeah. that there's a lottery in each individual country with like maybe ping pong balls, you know, that people. Right. Select. Right. But. I mean, it is it is it is a good program, and I don't understand why Dick Durbin feels like he has to trade it out. To, you know, I just don't I just don't get that. You know, who are the politicians who are do, who are good on immigration, or if not politicians, who are the activists? Or well, I have some friends with the New York Immigration Coalition, which I think has done some really good work. Uh, there are, I think, we're about to see, and maybe even are starting to see, a movement of people running for office who are going to be talking mm-hmm. about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I now have something like four or five friends running for Congress, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. And almost every single one of them has mentioned it as a key driver of their choices. And I think I see a lot of community activism, but I feel, I mean, I, I'm a little worried that it doesn't seem necessarily to be rising to the level of the already elected representative yet. Uh, maybe I'm being pessimistic. Right. Yeah, I've seen community groups sort of rising to the occasion more and more. You know, there's a group called SALT, um, South Asian. Uh, it's a South Asian group that works for immigration justice. There's uh, Asian Americans. I think it's called Asian Americans Advancing Justice. It used to be the Asian Law Caucus that actively works on immigration issues from a legal standpoint. Um, I think we're seeing a time when second generation and third generation immigrants who are comfortably here, comfortably ensconced, are actually stepping up and recognizing the power that they have um, to speak up for people who are less fortunate, people who don't have the opportunities that they've had. I mean, that's kind of, that's not exactly what happens in your book, but that dawning of consciousness Mm -hmm. is, is part of what you're writing about in Lucky Boy, it seemed like to me. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With Lucky Boy, you know, I have Kavya and Rishi who are Indian American and they're very socially aware. They're very socially conscious to begin with. Um, they put that away to some extent when their personal um, their, their personal emotions get caught up in the situation. There's a sort of narrative of 
right? The immigrants who came before uh, under perhaps different policies, maybe professional visas, et cetera, et cetera, like a sort of um, like middle class or upper class immigrants or people who are the children of those people sort of being part sometimes of a certain kind of like class-based xenophobia, like, oh, these people, they didn't, we earned our way through. Uh, why can't they do the same thing? And then also just sort of the idea that, I don't know, because your group went through something difficult doesn't mean it needs to be repeated. Through My parents had to struggle and people of their generation had to struggle to make it here. Uh, but my parents and my family never had to deal with the fear that a parent could be picked up and deported, that a child could come home from school. You know, public school kids in Northern California now are getting letters from their superintendents telling them to set up an action plan just in case a parent gets picked up and put in detention. You know, who's that child going to go home with that day? It's a very immediate and present fear that I don't think a lot of people recognize. The way that that kind of fear can erode social fabric of like just sort of the most basic conversations you're having with your neighbors or your friends or your classmates or your teachers, you know, who can you disclose your status to? Just sort of the idea also that, you know, the United States has this infamous prison system, a huge portion of the American population is incarcerated. Like, how does this system of detention, how is that part of kind of the carceral state? And I thought that your portrayal of that and the way that it... um, it's just so, so important because, I mean, there's, we're talking about the language here and we're, we haven't, we don't talk about, you know, say immigrant detention as part of like the American prison system. You know, you were asking, you were talking about whether the detention system is incarceration. It is. And it's almost, you know, it's almost worse than the prison system because the prison system has programs in place. Um, it's considered a long-term situation for a prisoner. And so there are opportunities within the system to be educated, to grow, to engage oneself in actual activities. Um, the detention system is is basically a storage it's basically a storage system for human beings and it's considered temporary. And so there's no, there's almost no um, sort of human enrichment. And just so readers know, we're we're talking specifically about the scenes that your character solely has in the novel where she is detained. I write mostly about Sri Lanka and related politics and that kind of, um, right, the like liminal state of waiting for your own release or for someone else's release, the uncertainty of maybe knowing where is that person or will they, will they even come back? Um, right. Like that is, that is an important distinction, I think, from the prison system. I wonder if, um, if we can ask you to read the scene in which Sully is detained. It's, I think, one of the most powerful parts of the book. They've got a baby, an officer barked. Ignacio, startled, began to howl. Sylvia stood by Soli, heads held high, wrists behind their backs. Nacho, Soli called. Estoy aquí. Sylvia hissed her quiet. He's all right, the cop said, chewing his gum and crossing his arms. You got guns in there? No. No guns? You got drugs? Drogas? There was no reason for him to ask. Already, the large blonde officer sat on the passenger seat, opening the glove compartment, spilling the contents onto the floor, poking his fingers in and burying his teeth with the effort. You can't do that, Sylvia spat. Soli cowered. You can't search our car like that. 
he would find nothing but a map of San Francisco, a Leela Downs cassette tape, a chapstick, and a maxi pad. You got drugs in there? The officer asked again. No, Sylvia said. He turned to the car. Search the baby seat, he called, pointing to the back window. The car seat, whatever it's called. He turned back to Sylvia. You illegals? What? Illegals. Are you illegals? Inmigrantes? Illegales? No, Sylvia answered. We have papers. He called to another officer, the third, a woman who'd been keeping watch all this time at the border of the scene. He said, get their bags for them. Turning to Soli, let's see some ID. TNS ID? See. People paused on sidewalks, slowed their cars, stood and watched with their cell phones held aloft. From the crowd, a woman pushed her shopping cart towards Soli. She was ash-toned and no taller than the mound of her dusty belongings. She was barely a whisper of a woman. She peered at Soli through oversized glasses, looked her up and down and sneered. Get the fuck back to Mexico, she said. Ma'am, the policeman placed a hand on the woman's elbow and she yanked her arm away, cursed at the officer and trundled off. Later, weeks and months later, Soli would wonder if this was not so much an insult as a morsel of sound advice. Thank you. Okay. Could, could you talk to us a little bit about writing that scene or how you prepared to write that scene? Yeah. Um, so when I was writing that scene, I had to kind of juggle a lot of things at once. Um, I had to know, first of all, realistically what happens in an arrest situation like that. I, and I had to figure out a situation in which Soli and Sylvia would be picked up. You know, um, this was essentially a, a traffic stop that went very wrong. And, uh, I, I had to figure out with just what the technicalities were about picking up an undocumented immigrant in a situation like that and what would merit them actually being taken away. Um, I, of course, had to plug into Soli as a character, as a mother, and uh, feel that biological terror that you feel when you, know, uh, when you have this prospect of being pulled away from your child, when your baby is being taken away from you against your will. Um, and I had to sort of measure the, the police officer's language. You know, I didn't want this to turn into sort of a, a cheesy cop show. Um, but, but there had to be coldness there in their language. And there had to be a baseline suspicion that Soli and Sylvia were treated with for really no good reason. And that had to come through in the officer's questions because they have a very limited dialogue. Um, and there's very limited time within this scene. Uh, and then, of course, there's that there's just that very human embarrassment of being stopped on the street, of being a spectacle, of having people stop to look at you. And this is this was all kind of swirling around and happening for Soli at once. And um, that that's that's kind of what I had to layer in. And it did take a while. It took a while to get the scene right. It's a terrific scene. Thanks. Um, our last episode was about cross-cultural readings, right? And people, how, uh -huh. how they work and how authors use them. Did you do any of the, use any of those techniques? But I did have a really long sit down with um, my sister-in-law, who used to be the director of immigration at UC Berkeley. She's an immigration lawyer. She now runs Asian Americans Advancing Justice. 
And um, she's talked me through what would happen in an arrest situation. Um, and, you know, as I was researching the book and, and taking solely to detention and figuring all that out, there were a number of people who sat down with me, who had meetings with me, who just gave me what they knew, really. People were very generous with their knowledge and with their expertise. And I had to take that and create story from it. Um, but I don't think I could have created the story without that very concrete information. Um, well, Shanti, thanks so much for being with yeah. us. It's a real treat to hear about your book and to hear your take on um, the various language debates surrounding this. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. It was really interesting. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. It's good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you. Thanks. And now here's Jen Cantrell with our In the Stacks section for today. Hi, this is Jen Cantrell with this week's section of In the Stacks. This week's guest is independent bookstore owner Anthony Stramoski. Anthony and his wife Amanda own Rough Draft Barn Books in Kingston, New York, which just opened this November. Anthony, what recommendations do you have for us this week? The first is Homegoing by Yaa Jesse, um, which came out in 2016 and uh, begins in the author's native country of Ghana in the 18th century and kind of follows the diverging and converging paths of two half-sisters for almost 300 years. Uh, one of them sold into slavery and one of them ends up married to a white English officer. And it's just heartbreaking, enraging in its depictions of uh, racial and sexual violence, but it's also really inspiring because her language brings you so close to individual characters and you get to sit down and watch them deal um, the pain of everyday life. And it was just has really stayed with me. So that's the that's the first book. Um, the second one is a book that I've been recommending for a couple of years now to everybody I talk to. And that's A Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James. He's he's from Jamaica. Um, this book takes place over several decades, mostly in and around Kingston, Jamaica, um, but all but also in New York City. And it uses the true life assassination attempt of Bob Marley as its centerpiece. But what it really does is follow a series of stories um, in really short chapters, which I enjoy, following several main characters as they deal with corruption and poverty and violence in their everyday lives. And the last book is something that's brand new and my wife and I did not know about until we saw it flying off our shelves. And that's called This Is How We Do It, One Day in the Lives of Seven Kids from Around the World. And that's by Matt Lamoth. came out just in May of 2017. And it's actually a children's nonfiction book. So it's a little more uplifting than the, than the previous recommendations. And it, it uh, follows kids in their daily lives um, in India, Japan, Peru, Uganda, Italy, Iran, and Russia. It shows you what they eat, how they get to school, and what they learn when they're at school what they do with their families, their daily routines. Um, it just has beautiful illustrations. It even ends up with a few real pictures or a few photos of the real families that were the inspirations for this book in the back. It's just in this current environment, seeing, you know, just seeing illustrations of common humanity um, between people that may look a little bit different, but really have so much in common. Um, it's just a wonderful thing. Um, one thing that I didn't love about it is that all of the families are sort of two-parent um, heterosexual nuclear families. Um, so it might have been nice to see a little bit more diversity there. But I think overall, um, for exposing exposing your kids to other cultures in a way that shows them that they're really not that different, this is a great start. 
And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Sugi and I will be back with a new episode in two weeks. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us in iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or at the Literary Hub website. We really appreciate all the feedback and discussions we had from listeners and friends about our last episode, Literary Color Lines. We think of this podcast as a community, so we hope you'll keep it up. Speaking of which, our sponsor, Cereal Box. If you're interested in their service, and I definitely am, we hope you'll, you'll sign in using that LitHub code we mentioned at the top of the podcast. That would make them want to sponsor us again. And that would make it so much easier for Sugi and I to bring you this podcast. You can find links to the books we referenced this week on our Facebook page at FNF Pod or on Twitter at FNF Talk. And happy reading, you creep.